Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our shortwave transmitter has been temporarily disabled and we will inform you as soon as it is restored. Stay tuned to Channel Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Neto Chimani. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Sudan security forces accused of killing anti-government protesters and South Africa begins reintegration of displaced Malawian migrants. In economics news, South Africa's power utility to spend millions of dollars on maintenance. And in sports news, Protea selectors urged to pick Adian Markram for this year's World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Outgoing Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has asked his country for forgiveness. In a letter published by the Algerian Press Service, the President said he was proud of his contributions but realized he had failed in his duty. Bouteflika officially announced his resignation on Tuesday following weeks of mass protests against his attempt to stand for a fifth term as President. Algeria's Constitutional Council Council has formally accepted his resignation after 20 years in power. Under the constitution, a caretaker government is supposed to be in charge for 90 days, during which time presidential elections must be arranged. The Cameroonian government has hit back at Human Rights Watch over its report that accuses the military of gross human rights violations in the fight against separatists in Cameroon's English-speaking northwest and southwest regions. Government spokesperson René Sadi accused HRW of obvious bias in favor of armed gangs. The Human Rights Watch report says Cameroon security forces have committed extrajudicial executions, burnt property, carried out arbitrary arrests and tortured detainees. The report, however, documents abuses on both sides, including arson attacks on homes and schools. The reintegration process of hundreds of displaced foreign nationals in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province after attacks in an informal settlement in Durban last week has been described as a resounding success. President Cyril Ramaphosa and International Relations Minister Lindu Sisulu, who engaged with African diplomats as well as officials from India, Bangladesh and Pakistan, labelled the attacks as pure criminality and not xenophobia. Municipality Disaster Management and Emergency Control Representative Malcolm Canham says the site where the displaced people stayed after the attacks will be officially closed after the repatriation and reintegration process. So we've initiated several processes over the last few days. One was the sheltering of of the affected community. Parallel to that was a reintegration process into the community, making safe on the ground. And the third process is the repatriation. So those who have voluntarily requested to be repatriated to Malawi, their home country, are now have been processed and that is almost at conclusion. And today already people have been issued their travel documents. 
Today, the last few two structures from the site will be uh, taken down and the site officially is closed. Families of Kenyans who died on an Ethiopian Airlines flight last month say they will sue the airline and United States aircraft manufacturer Boeing over the deaths. They say Boeing and the airline should bear the responsibility for the deaths of their loved ones. The families also say initial reports show that the Boeing 737 MAX 8 had design faults that could have led to the crash. They are being represented by a group of lawyers from Kenya and the U.S. The family of a Rwandan national who died in the crash has already filed a lawsuit in a U.S. court alleging that the Boeing 737 MAX 8 plane design is defective. And finally, British MPs have voted by a majority of one to force Prime Minister Theresa May to ask for an extension to the Brexit process in a bid to avoid any no-deal scenario. May says she hopes to get an agreement passed by Parliament before the 22nd of May so the United Kingdom does not have to take part in European elections. The BBC's Ben Wright reports. The bill still needs to be approved by the Lords before it becomes law. A government spokesperson said it would place a severe constraint on ministers' ability to negotiate a Brexit extension. Theresa May hopes the further delay can be short if she reaches a cross-party agreement with Labour and talks will continue today. But this last-minute search for a cross-party consensus is straining both main parties and it will be very tough for Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn to reconcile their differences over Brexit. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Human rights organizations say heavily armed security forces in Sudan have killed more than 50 people in recent weeks for holding what the authorities in the capital Khartoum describe as illegal demonstrations. James Shemangula has more. As international and local humanitarian organizations disclose the killing of more than 50 people by heavily armed Sudan forces, since December 19 last year for staging countrywide demonstrations to force Omar Hassan Ahmed el-Bashir to quit the presidency, the United States has expressed anger at what it calls continued use of extrajudicial detentions of demonstrators. The United States' anger is derived from a visit by its charge the affairs in the capital Khartoum, Stephen Kutsis, to the home of opposition leader and human rights activist Sadiq Youssef shortly after he was released from detention. In a statement, the U.S. diplomat said the 88-year-old Sadiq Youssef was held in detention for 88 days without trial. The statement said, and I quote, No one should be subjected to harsh treatment for merely holding and expressing views that differ from views of the government, end of quote. The statement further stressed that the Sudanese government 
should end what the United States characterized as the practice of broad detentions. Any detained person, the statement concluded, deserves a quick judicial determination on whether or not criminal charges should be filed against the detainee. Up to the time of filing this report, the Sudanese government has not commented on the statement released by the United States Embassy in Khartoum. Although the demonstrations that started on the 19th of December last year are continuing, they have failed to force El-Bashir to quit the presidency. Hamdi Hassan Abdurrahman, himself a citizen of Sudan, teaches history in Qatar. Abdel Rahman explains why it's not easy for demonstrators to remove El-Bashir's regime. He came to power, he was able to use co-option and uh, to bring the loyal people to his side. Professor Abdel Rahman says people spearheading the demonstrations are not ordinary Sudanese citizens per se, but university students. They are university students, uh, professionals, and this is why you have the professional leading. The question that arises is whether or not the ongoing demonstrations can be compared to the 2011 Arab uprising. Professor Abdul Rahman again. If you compare what is going on in Sudan as the 2011 Arab uprising, no, there is a big difference. The regional international situation was totally different. The demonstrations in Sudan are taking place at a time when one of the country's prominent graffiti artists, Asil Diab, who lives in Qatar, but is now in Khartoum, is painting pictures of some of the people that were killed since December last year. Her artwork is seen in many public places in Khartoum, and the authorities have so far not questioned Diab. She tersely explains what she did before she became a graffiti artist. Initially, I wanted to participate in the protests in Sudan. I heard a lot of stories about the martyrs, and it was very emotional, and I just had to do something about that. Since graffiti artist Diab arrived in Sudan's capital Khartoum, she has visited many homes where she interacted with the families of people killed during the demonstrations. To show the families that she shares with them their sorrow, Diab has painted a portrait of the slain protesters on the walls of their homes. Interestingly, Diab's cell phone contains names of all the people that were killed and photos of their faces. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The Eteguini municipality in South Africa's Guazul Natal province has described the reintegration process of hundreds of displaced foreign nationals as a resounding success. This comes after the foreign nationals fled an informal settlement in the Durban suburb of Sydenham after attacks and threats. President Sil Ramaphosa and International Relations Minister Lindiwe Sisulu, who met with African diplomats as well as officials from India, Bangladesh and Pakistan over the attacks, have labelled it as pure criminality and not xenophobia. Ntlantlangele reports. The situation in the Benwood informal settlement in Durban is back to normal after hundreds of foreign nationals fled their homes last week after attacks in the middle of the night. Religious and civil society organizations have donated clothes and food to the displaced. South African nationals in the settlement say 
the displaced people are welcome there after the attacks by criminal elements, as they put it. As South Africans, we are happy that our brothers and sisters from other African countries are back to their homes. We love them with all our hearts. What befell them was unfortunate, done by the selfish evildoers who are criminals in all the sense of the word. We have been living side by side in peace for far too long. So seeing one African attacking another was a disturbing sight. To begin with, we did not approve the attacks on foreign nationals. They are also human beings like us. I hope this sad chapter has come to an abrupt end. We do not wish such a period to befall us again in this lifetime. A representative of Malawi Nationals, Raitwell Saka, says the reintegration process comes after extensive dialogue between foreign nationals and the locals. The thing was successful. We were engaged in several dialogues, whereby all those dialogues were successful. Uh, There was a, uh, a communication between us, the Malawian community, Uh, the South African community, Uh, the meeting uh, was successful. And the community, the South African community, has accepted us back and wants us to go back. Etagwini Municipality Disaster Management and Emergency Control Representative Malcolm Kenham says the site where the displaced people stayed since the attacks is being officially closed after the repatriation and reintegration process. So we've initiated several processes over the last few days. One was the sheltering of of the affected community. Parallel to that was a reintegration process into the community, making safe on the ground. And the third process is the repatriation. So those who have voluntarily requested to be repatriated to Malawi, their home country, are now have been processed and that is almost at conclusion. And today already people have been issued their travel documents. Today the last few two structures from the site will be uh, taken down and the site officially is closed because now the last phase of repatriation has kicked in and is almost at completion. So we stand down the displaced site for the Malawian displaced people. Meanwhile, Ben Woodward committee member Sipo Kanyile says shops belonging to foreign nationals are open for business and that people have undertaken to make sure that foreign nationals are safe. With this program of the foreign people, so it's going very well. So people are paying their houses. So, so far there's no problem. There's no problem. The shops are open. There's another one there behind me. is open. And another one that side is open. So... Everything is normal for the foreign people to the, pro, the program to take to take them back for their houses in the area of Benut. So everything is normal. People is normal. People are going to work. Nothing that is disturbed. There was in a xenophobia. There was a misunderstanding between the people of South Africa and Malawian. That was Ben Wood, Ward Committee Member Sipo Kanyile. That report by Nkanzangele in Durban. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetwa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. We ya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, dumelang sanbonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwanji. Africa, enyomi, kilonshele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, Zimbabwe, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It 
doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people, Channel Africa. The African Perspective. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. Bringing you the African Perspective. Politics and the church have been running mates in South Africa for a very long time. Liberation movements forged ties with certain church denominations during the apartheid years, while religious leaders were also on the front lines of the struggle. Since the dawn of democracy, the African Christian Democratic Party is the biggest faith-based party in the South African parliament and currently holds three seats. But the May 8th election will see a steep rise of faith-based parties vying for votes, some of them new to the fold. As Olani Sijinga reports, these parties are not just punting the morality ticket, but believe their ideas are novel to take the country forward. The promise of a better life for all, the underlying message and the manifestos of the parties contesting the elections. But some of these parties were born in the church and see themselves as an alternative to this promise. Dr. Liolo Dondolo is a political analyst and explains how the organizations worked with the churches. There is a long history between politics and religion. If you remember, during the apartheid years, there were some uh, religious organizations that were formed, especially in the 1980s. We see the likes of Desmond Tutu, French Chicano, and, and, and Alan Poussac. They were at the forefront of the struggle, and they used their positions to challenge the status quo. The African Transformation Movement is a new party that launched its manifesto recently and believes that it's time for religious institutions to become involved. Zaman Jona is the Eastern Cape campaign spokesperson. It is important then that we get our hands dirty as religious institutions, roll up our sleeves and be part of the conversation in creating a suitable environment for the beneficiation of the masses. So in us taking on this particular route, it is to speak to those challenges that we find within our society, which are challenges of um, exclusion. And when we say decolonize, the economy, we are actually talking to the creation of a suitable environment for growth. Another new party, the Christian Political Movement, also believes it will receive a significant support as the party leader, Brandon Wabumashati, explains. We are not going to be an opposition party even to the African National Congress or to any political party because we believe that the ANC did what it should do. We are this political movement that now is looking at taking the people of South Africa into the promise, into the dream of the people that even started the revolution in terms of uh, setting South Africa free from the, from the apartheid regime. But the increase in Christian faith-based parties is not well received by the established parties like the ACDP, Eastern Cape leader, as Luke It's not a positive development because it's splitting the same Christian votes. But if political parties can come behind a party that has been there, a party that has got a track record to support ACDP for a united vision for South Africa, but do newly formed faith-based parties have a future in political landscape? We put this question to Dr. Dondolo again. 
But indeed, they are competing amongst themselves. Hence, you find that most of them, they will just survive. In fact, they don't survive. They will just appear before the, ele the elections. And then after that, they are nowhere to be seen. So I think they need to have a, a common umbrella and be a, un a united force. Perhaps they will be able to garner some support. But the way things are now, their support is not sustainable. And even their existence is not sustainable. Some of the Christian formations have expressed a willingness to work with like-minded parties after the elections. I'm Kolani Sichinga in the Eastern Cape. I'm going to complain about you to the Ombudsman because this is what you do. Hang on, don't interrupt me. This is what you do. The last time you came here, there was a press meeting here. We were all very polite to each other. You asked one question and then you, you batted the ANC on a completely irrelevant issue and you insisted and I will repeat what I said to you before we started this press conference I said that I want to say to ENCA and I'm saying it to you now without fear because I too have the right of freedom of speech not only you I said to you that if you have any attack question on the ANC that is not in our press release you will address them to our spokesperson. All right. Now, Mr. Uh, Samkelo, you have a habit of intimidating everybody. You have a habit of making people feel that you are the lord of the media. You are one journalist. You work for one ENCA. And you think that all of us must shiver and shake. You call me a bully, but you are the worst bully I've ever come across. I've never met anyone as arrogantly disposed as you are and you want to defend freedom of speech you never fought for and you don't defend freedom of speech because your particular uh, uh, TV station has decided the direction it will go on as it did in 2016 you followed the DA slogan of vote for change so what do you want us to do to bow and scrape every time you walk into a room and call you my lord the lord of the media you're just a journalist, like I am just a citizen. Nothing more, nothing less. And I cannot be ill-treated by you any longer and keep quiet. So I am going to the Ombudsman. And yes, it is personal now. And uh, that clip there is uh, ANC Deputy Secretary General Jersey Duarte. Now... In a heated exchange with an ENCA journalist, it has left many questions regarding media freedom and the increased attacks on media freedom in the country. Both parties accused each other of being bullies after an altercation during a media briefing at the party's headquarters in Johannesburg on Tuesday. During the exchange, Duarte labelled ENCA political journalist Samgele Masego arrogant and a bully. Duarte was briefing broadcast news stations on the special National Executive Committee meeting. To talk to us more on this, we now joined on the line by Chairperson of the South African National Editors Forum, Matlazi Matlazi. Matlazi, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Thank you for having us. Now, what is the outcome of the meeting you had with the ANC yesterday? Uh, essentially, uh, the outcome of the meeting was we had the ANC restating its commitment to media freedom. Uh, they have described the incident that happened as unfortunate. And uh, it was also an opportunity, obviously, to say how do we um, actually 
build a better relationship between the media and the governing party, understanding that the governing party uh, holds a lot of power and a lot of leadership. I mean, they were very conscious that uh, they do not want this incident to spark or to put any other reporter in danger. Uh, They have committed to communicating this message to uh, their members as well. Now, we understand that uh, ENCA was also part of the meeting. Did the ANC elaborate on the problems they have with this particular TV station and uh, what other concerns did they put forward? Uh, there were two separate meetings. Uh, the ANC met just with ENCA and then met uh, with us. Obviously, as the South African National Editors Forum, ours is for a broader uh, representation of the industry. And our focus was wider than just uh, the incident yesterday. And there were many other issues that we raised uh, with the ANC where we believe that they can play a role as part of strengthening media freedom. Uh, I do understand that uh, in their conversations with ENCA, uh, the the, the was uh, a, a very similar agreement in terms of saying that the incident was unfortunate and it should never, ever have happened. I don't think we should even find any excuses uh, to justify uh, the, the verbal attack that happened. I don't think we, we actually are engaged in that, but it was more to reemphasize why it was problematic and why the governing party has more responsibility in terms of opposing media freedom. I mean, as you know, in that exchange, there were a few things that concerned us as South African National Editors Forum. Uh, part of it was Jesse Duarte uh, suggesting that because Samkele is younger and is not part of the liberation struggle, cannot defend media freedom. And we know uh, that media freedom is the cornerstone of our democracy and our constitution. So all of us have a responsibility to defend it. Uh, We also took issue with um, telling a media house that they're asking attacking questions or um, questions that are damaging to the ANC. And we explained to them, in reality, journalists must ask the robot questions. They must ask the critical questions. And it can't be a script that is dedicated, dictated to by a particular party. Just uh, looking back at that uh, media briefing and uh, the, the exchange that took place, in journalism, with uh, any opportunity to ask a question, whether it is a media briefing about a certain issue, did Samgela do anything wrong? Because as, as far as we can tell, um, this is what a journalist does. They go out and ask the robust questions um, without even checking where and uh, at what time it is he's asking the questions. Exactly. And that is what we emphasize to the ANC, that, you know, given any opportunity to speak to a leader, especially of a governing party, especially on a controversial issue uh, like the list, any reporter will take advantage and actually ask all of those questions. As an editor, uh, I send my reporters out with a brief about, you know, should you find an opportunity to uh, speak to this person? These are the questions that you should ask. And they have a right to decide not to answer them, but they cannot tell us that we can't ask uh, the questions. And also, uh, what we also emphasize is that, you know, when journalists are sitting in front of leaders, they are not sitting there representing themselves or just um, the media houses that they work for, but they are there to represent uh, South Africans who don't have access to political leaders, but have these questions and would like for them to be answered.
Now, very quickly before we wrap up, do you think that there's a need for, um, you know, engagement uh, between media houses and all political parties, especially um, now that uh, we're heading up to the May 8th elections? And, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, robustness that's out there. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of work that's taking place on the ground. And uh, temperatures are rising. Yes, and, 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 you know, (laughs) you could call it... You could call it a volatile uh, situation before the elections. Yeah, and it's true, and we're very conscious of that. And what we have done as the South African National Interest Forum is that we have started engagements with political parties, but we've also done uh, nationwide training for journalists. And we've actually availed um, uh, the coursework, if I can call it that, uh, to anybody who's interested to go to our website to actually check it out. Part of the thing we do look at is what does the law say during an election? What is the role of the media? So that the media also understands how important they are in building a democracy and strengthening a democracy. And obviously with that, uh, with the right you enjoy, there is that responsibility. And also what we have done is based We seem to have lost uh, a Senate uh, chairperson, uh, Mathazi Mathase there, who was just uh, giving us an update on the meeting that took place between themselves as Senate with the ANC and an update on the meeting with the ENCA TV station with the ANC. Join world-renowned Harvard economist and corporate strategist Mark Kremer and other exciting speakers in Nairobi, Kenya at the Africa Shared Value Summit from 23 to 24 May 2019. Hear how business thought leaders and changemakers have transformed their organizations through profit with purpose. Book your ticket at africasharedvaluesummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud media partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will be broadcasting live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss out on the broadcasts on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or Southern Africa DSTV 802 to listen. Channel Africa from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines outgoing Algerian President Abdulaziz Bouteflika asks the nation for forgiveness in a letter published by the Algerian Press Service. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is in Libya to prevent a major confrontation between rival authorities in the country. And the families of Kenyans who died on an Ethiopian Airlines flight last month say they will sue the airline and U.S. aircraft manufacturer Boeing over the deaths. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The South African non-profit organization, the Lupus Drive, has raised concern about the attention lupus disease is receiving from the South African government, arguing that it's not enough. It's the same long-term autoimmune disease that claimed the life of former President Jacob Zuma's son, Vusi Ntlaganipo Zuma, last year. This year alone, some five patients have succumbed to the disease within the, within the organization. Lupus is a systematic autoimmune disease that occurs when your body's immune system attacks your own tissues and organs. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Bonzo Kaka Muilua, founder of the Lupus Drive. Bonzo, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Now, Bonzo, please elaborate further on what lupus is and uh, do we know what the causes are? Um, Lupus is a chronic autoimmune disease where the immune system becomes hyperactive and as a result, normal healthy tissues attack themselves. Um, So when that basically happens, um, most most, if not all the organs in your body collapses. in regards to knowing what the cause is, we as an NGO and other NGOs in South Africa are actually still trying to establish um, with medical doctors and medical research as to what initially um, causes lupus. But as for now, we don't really know exactly what um, triggers the disease or the competition. Now, when and how was the lupus drive started and what is your core mission? Um, the Lupus Drive was basically established. Um, it was launched in 2017, November 2017, and we are a non-profit organization. Um, our mission basically is to be a strong common voice in South Africa um, that is basically representing every single person that is diagnosed with lupus. Um, basically, we aim to work with um, hospitals, um, local hospitals and clinics in order to basically get to the core um, basics, which is what what triggers lupus, what is the cause, um, what how how do we assist? Because currently, uh, lupus is actually being treated by cancer medication, meaning that we don't really have medication that treats lupus as a condition. So those are things that we, as an organisation, are trying to get to and to communicate with South Africa, saying that we need assistance in this because it's, it's, it's really a pandemic. Daily challenges that people with lupus face um, that you'd like to share with us. Just talk to us about that because I think an understanding or education with regards to um, lupus and how it affects individuals. And I know it, it, it generally affects individuals differently. Um, you know, one, um, though there's four different kinds of lupus, the one thing that um, affects every single loopy is kind of fatigue which is something that uh, if, if they, they, 
Lupin becomes so tired to a point where they can't work and half the time constantly dismissed from work. We go to social development and basically explain the situation and they are being um, rejected for grants and it's, 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 it's just a horrible thing, you know, and fatigue basically. It's fatigue, it's, it's hair loss, it's rash, uh, pulmonary problems, kidney failures, they constantly have swollen joints. So it's basically, it's, it's a number of things that they basically go to. But the one thing that I know that affects most of them is chronic fatigue. And how many lives have you managed to touch so far in terms of, uh, you know, you're planning to grow your reach within South Africa and globally? Within, um, within a year and five months that we've been established, we have been able to basically reach a lot of provinces in South Africa. I will basically give you a number of 618, including people that we have on our support group and outside of the support group. We've been also called to Tanzania, Namibia, and Botswana to go continue doing what we're doing because this is something that is international. It's not only affecting us as South Africans. This is something that is affecting the globe. And in terms of the numbers of uh, affected people, for instance, in South Africa, do you have maybe a database or um, how does it work? Do doctors refer your pa- the pa- lupus patients to your organization? How do people generally, uh, people with lupus, get a hold of you and get assistance or some sort of uh, comfort or counseling, so to put, so to put okay. it? So we do not have states in South Africa. We do not have stats in South Africa, which is another problem that we're currently facing. Um, in regards to how people get a hold of us as the lupus drive, we have communicated with local hospitals and clinics um, in order for rheumatologists to basically refer um, their patients to us because we do have a support group. Um, so basically, most of the time, people go, when they go to their doctors, they do get a referral to the NGO. Apart from that, we are on social media platforms, where Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where we literally have um, daily infographics, which is um, inform- informative posts that we try and create awareness and try and support um, affected warriors. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, people get information about the lupus drive there, and then they reach out to us. Now, why do you think this uh, particular disease is being neglected by the South African government? And uh, what attempts or have you made any attempts to get their attention regarding the issue? Attempts have been made, Lulu. And what's the response been? mm, In regards to the South African government, it's actually quite tricky because um, we've set down National Office Department of Health we set down regional office department of health and we are basically getting the same response. Um, half the time they don't even know what the disease is, which is another thing that is devastating because if you have no knowledge about what the what this condition is, then why don't we assist each other in moving forward and actually assisting those that are directly affected by the disease? So to till this date, I have no response to how they are assisting us because there's really nothing being done about our, um, in regards to our government. However, we did get a response from the Deputy Minister um, of Education, uh, which is Minister Manamela, who reached out to us and said uh, for the Two Oceans Marathon, he will be running for the lupus driving, creating awareness for lupus. But apart from that, nothing is done. Like, nothing. 
We've seen um, global celebrities, uh, for instance, uh, Selena Gomez, I think, who is uh, um, a lupus uh, 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 warrior, so as you call them. Um, and there's others who have come out uh, internationally. Um, what is being done globally in terms of lupus, in terms of highlighting this particular disease and the attention that it needs? Is there anything that you know of? Um, and for the first time last year, um, Donald Trump, no, for the first time this year, 2019, uh, the President of the United States, uh, President Trump, actually allocated funds in order for research to be done around the cause, um, what really causes or triggers lupus. Um, I know that they do a lot of awareness that side, and there's quite a lot. There's, there's a huge volume. Unlike us here at home in South Africa, where there's only certain um, entities that are actually trying to create awareness. So there, there's quite a lot of things that are actually done, because it's not only Salima Gomez, Gomez um, Nick Kanan, uh, Lady Gaga, and all those other people, Snoop Dogg's daughter, also uh, got diagnosed recently. So the thing that's assisting them that side is that they're also public about it. Understand, and they have the, the the support from their government as well, which is something that we don't have in South Africa. You're proclaiming May 10th as World Lupus Day as to assist your cause. How do you think this will assist uh, the lupus cause? Um, in in proclaiming May 10th in South Africa, as it is globally, South Africans will be able to be aware. You know. Um, People are very excited when there's a holiday or a day proclaimed. We're not requesting for a holiday. We're requesting for recognition. Proclaiming the day is not saying that we're requesting for a holiday. Do you understand? Which is something that I think the government also doesn't understand. But this will assist those that still don't know about the disease um, to actually go out there and find out as to what initially is this disease. The government sectors or different departments in South Africa will be able to give recognition to this day, do you understand? Because right now, nothing is actually done about May 10th. Not only is, not, is it not proclaimed in South Africa, but the day is not recognized, never mind the month of May itself. Whereas cancer, HIV, TB, and all those other chronic diseases are being given the attention, but in regards to lupus, nothing is actually done. Now, how does one get involved if they want to get a hold of you? Where, where, do, where are your contact details, social media, um, you know, and, and uh, just to keep the drive and the awareness uh, going? Um, if one wants to get involved, involved um, we are. We are in social media. Our contacts are there. Um, there's direct contact to myself and the rest of the team. And, yeah, it, it depends on the type of way or manner that a person literally wants to get involved. But in regards to creating awareness, uh, reposts, communicating on social platforms about the disease and basically assisting and making people aware of what lupus is. That's, that's basically what we're doing right now. Bonzo, thank you so much for joining us and all the best. Thank you so much, Lulu. That's Bonzo Mwilwa, founder of the Lupus Drive in South Africa, joining us on the line. American Space Agency NASA has sharply criticized India's missile destruction of a satellite in space, suggesting the test could have damaged the International Space Station. NASA Chief Jim Bridenston says the risk of debris colliding with the ISS has risen sharply since the test. Ranasen has more from New Delhi. Five days after India's anti-satellite missile launch, 
NASA head Jim Bridenstine also warned the test increased threat to the space station by 44%. We have identified 400 pieces of orbital debris from that one event. About 60 pieces have been tracked. In other words, they've got a tracking number and, and we're able to keep up with where they are. Of those 60, we know that 24 of them are going above the apogee of the International Space Station. That is a terrible, terrible thing to create an event that sends debris in an apogee that goes above the International Space Station. And that kind of activity is not compatible with the future of human spaceflight that we need to see have happen. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government is yet to issue official assurances. But military scientists such as Ravi Gupta were hard at work to mollify all spacefaring nations. From where this figure of 44% has come? I have serious doubt as a scientist. It doesn't just doesn't appeal to the mind. The Americans, the Russians, the Chinese, they have conducted a large number of test anti-satellite missions before our own successful 27th March asset mission, Mission Shakti. It indicates the kind of heat which is being generated. It just indicates the importance of this test, a magnitude which people are still not realizing. Even tiny pieces of orbiting debris can be dangerous. But that warning was lost in the din of nationalistic fervor. Technology commentator Pallav Bagla was among the frontline cheerleaders. But India acknowledged very clearly that when an ASAT test is done, there would be debris which is generated. The Ministry of External Affairs statement talked of debris. The American military, which monitors space debris, also gave a very muted response. Obviously, the NASA chief would react. There would be some pieces of debris which will fly around. Maybe there's a finite risk which may increase. That is all right. The Indian premier announced the March 27 missile test in a dramatic broadcast. And Vipin Narang of MIT's Security Studies program said it was Modi's moment in the sun. When the Chinese, for example, conducted an ASAT test, there was just a very banal short statement from the foreign ministry. In India, too, normally when um, there's a missile test, the statement comes out of DRDO. But Prime Minister Modi is a savvy politician, and I think he's trying to burnish his national security credentials. And had it not been an ASAT test, you know, I think there would have been an announcement of whatever test was successful. Uh, because I think there's a very, you know, a political opportunity here for him. Analysts suspect the test aimed to drum up support for India's ruling BJP party ahead of national elections starting next week. Modi rally. That report by Rana Sen in India. Our economics updates up next with Tabisoluhoku. Good morning. Several manufacturing companies are set to relocate from Kenya to Ethiopia in protests of the high cost of electricity. This even as the Kenyan government insists it's working on a plan to bring down the cost of power, which has made locally made products to be less competitive. One of the companies that will be setting up a plant in Ethiopia by November, citing high power bills, is a major glass manufacturer that supplies some of the biggest bottling firms in Kenya. South Africa's power utility ESCOM will be spending 636 million US dollars on maintenance over the next five years. This according to the utility CEO Paramani Hatebe. He has encouraged the South Africans to continue saving power and says a public participation during last month's load shedding 
put a thousand megawatts back into the grid. Hadebe says that the construction of Kusile and Midubi power stations is 80% close to completion and cannot be abandoned, as the projects will benefit the country. The issue of maintenance and keeping the capex. The capex will still be sitting at about 45 billion rand or so, but we needed to make a lot of cuts in other areas. It was important that we do so, because if we don't do so, then we will not have met our own survival strategy. What we have decided to do is over the next three, four years, ESCOM is going to cut cost by an amount of 20 billion. This in itself will help us sustain the business. The Travel Conference in South Africa will this year showcase everything Africa has to offer to the world. Tourism South Africa has given the media a preview of the annual conference that will take place from the 2nd to the 4th of May in Durban. Chief Convention Bureau Officer at SA Tourism, Amanda Kutsian Lapo, says a part of the focus will be to bring more innovation to the tourism industry and sell Africa as a top tourist destination. We enhance things like help people with the app, make sure that we have better diary systems, you know, so that the meetings can happen because at the end of the day, we all are looking for business. The other thing that is really going to be different this year is that we are taking our welcome event outside the convention centre. I think it's important that we also showcase to our visitors what this beautiful destination can offer and what is the culture. And we want to um, have a bus and, you know, some activity in Durban in Florida Road. Eswatini's Ministry of Tourism and Environmental Affairs has developed terms of reference that will guide the different climate change coordination structures. This is a proposed structure developed to coordinate both the mitigation and adaptation components of climate change across the country. The structure is multi-sectoral and involves government, private sector and civil society and some key national bodies and associations. Former Nissan chief Carlos Ghosn has been rearrested in Tokyo while out on bail pending a trial over claims of financial misconduct. Prosecutors had been building a new case against him involving payments to a dealership in Oman. The auto boss, who denies any wrongdoing, was recently released on bail after 108 days in custody. Tokyo prosecutors say Gon had allegedly misappropriated Nissan funds for personal use. The 65-year-old was the architect of the alliance between Nissan and French maker Renault and brought Mitsubishi on board. In 2016, Gon's lawyer, Junikiro Ironaka, says he cannot understand why his client was arrested again. If prosecutors thought they could gather enough evidence for another prosecution, they should have just slapped additional charges. I don't understand why they detained him. If anything, they are trying to torment him through hostage justice and are trying to gain the upper hand. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.65 Nigerian Nara, 10.43 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan Shilling, and a 12.9 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar is costing 385 Brazilian roll, 
6523 Russian ripple 6869 Indian rupee 671 Chinese yuan 1414 to the South African rand it's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound 89 cents to the euro gold 1,292 dollars platinum 872 dollars per ounce the price of Brent crude oil is at 69 dollars 27 cents a barrel Channel Africa A sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu. A very good morning to all sport fans. Starting with Olympic news. The 2020 Olympic Games men's tennis final in Tokyo will be played over three sets rather than five, ending the prospect of a marathon gold shootout. In Rio three years ago, Andy Murray needed four hours and four grilling sets to defeat Juan Martin Del Potro in defending his Olympic title. There were 14 breaks of serve while Murray ended the final in floods of tears. Since 1996, the format for the men's singles event has been best of three sets in all rounds except to the final, but all matches at the 2020 Games in Tokyo will be now played over the shorter format. Meanwhile, the men's and women's doubles tournaments will feature a first to 10 points tie break instead of a deciding third set, the same format that has been used for mixed doubles. On to cricket news. Proteas test opener Din Elga says South Africa will be shooting themselves in the foot if they did not take Aidan Makram to the World Cup. The 24-year-old batsman ended as the top runner scorer when the Momentum One Day Cup concluded over the weekend, scoring over 500 runs in only five matches for the Titans. Makram was named man of the match in the final when his Saiblam century helped slay the Dolphins by a massive 135 runs and his captain Elga says so the national selectors cannot afford to leave him out for the trip to England. For me, it's not a discussion. Just take the boy. He scored over 500 runs nearly in four games for the Titans. There's, there's no debate here. Um, if he doesn't go, South Africa is shooting themselves in the foot of my opinion. Now that he is seemingly back in the frame, the only advantage that Makram does have is ability to bat anywhere in the order. He has scored hundreds as an opener or at number three and even further down at five or six. His versatility makes him a real asset and Makram says he will be happy to bat anywhere as long as he plays for his country. Sure. Um, look, I, I suppose if that's what they're looking for, it, it, only, it, it helps a lot that I've been able to do that. Um, but it's one of those things, and, and what I said in the start of the interview is selection is, I mean, you, you, can, you can only control quite a, quite a limited amount of things as a player, and one of them is scoring big runs, um, and that's sort of been the goal. Um, so, yeah, it's turned out all right. If, if, it, if, if the squad happens and, and we're in it, then superb. If not, then we, we keep trying to get better and hopefully for the next time. In golf news, golfer say a lead squad golfer Zetumiegi fired a sizzling three under par 68 to anchor Team South Africa on day two of the regional All-Africa Challenge Trophy at the Ngonyeni Lodge and Golf Estate in Eswatini. Fellow Ersni Alts. 
Follow any else and Fancourt Foundation member Larissa Dupree is returned 2 over 73 to give the defending champions a second round 2 over 144 total on Wednesday. South Africa chasing a seventh successive victory in the prestigious biennial event leads the team competition on to 84 and will carry a 46-stroke lead in today's final round. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our shortwave transmitter has been temporarily disabled. Stay tuned to Channel Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802, and on www.channelafrica.co.za. We will inform you as soon as our shortwave broadcast is restored. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Rivelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Lucky Dube with a song titled Respect. <laughs> 